Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, November 18th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler conversation about the fifth episode of HBO's Watchmen entitled Little Fear of Lightning. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, so HT is not with us. She is on vacation, uh, as we talked about last week. So she's going to be gone for the next few weeks. So Jacob is ably stepping in to uh, to take her place, and we are happy to have him. Um, I guess before we get in, I want to do a, a couple little house cleaning sort of announcements real quick. Uh, we got one reader email that I want to read. Uh, Greg uh, wrote in from Spain, and he said, Hey, guys, you talked about the Watchmen audience score and that it may be due to trolls who, uh, who dislike the themes that the show deals with. I agree to a point, but I I think this is not a show for regular audiences. I love the show. It is amazing, but I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, so that was his email. And I just wanted to throw that out to, to both of you, really. Um, uh, Jacob, I, I guess we'll start with you because I, you know, this is the first time that you're going to be talking about the show in depth. Um, so what do you think about the, the idea that uh, Watchmen is not necessarily a show for general audiences? I think that's accurate, but I also think that a lot of HBO's most popular shows are not for general audiences. I mean, uh, Game of Thrones was a hard, hard pitch and became a phenomenon. I'm not going to say Watchmen is on that level, but I am going to say that uh, people who pay for HBO, a premium cable network, are probably looking for something, you know, that's different as it is. They're not people who are watching your your, your average CBS sitcom. So while I will definitely say it's not to all tastes, I do think your average HBO subscriber is probably more open to what Watchmen is dealing out than maybe other audiences would be. Mm, yeah. Uh, Chris, what do you think? About the troll thing? Well, about the idea that, that Watchmen may not necessarily be a show for general audiences. Do you buy that statement? I mean, it's definitely not for everyone, but I think, like Jacob was saying, like, it's... You know, it's it's definitely a show that you're you're going to watch it for a specific reason. Like, I feel like a casual viewer isn't going to just wasn't going to tune into this to begin with because it was being sold as this very weird looking thing to begin. Like all the trailers made it look really 
weird in general weird in quotes because i don't think it's that weird but to the general public so i i don't buy that like someone just gonna stumble upon this but i I don't know i i've i've long ago given up trying to understand the public because i'm in my own little (laughs) my own little world where i like things that people loathe and vice versa yes uh and then one other thing i wanted to mention was i think um maybe two episodes ago i talked about i was reading some of the pdpedia stuff like the uh, supplemental materials and there was a letter between uh a member of the Keene family writing to one of judd's ancestors and i'm i was talking about how i couldn't really find the kkk connection there and one somebody tweeted me uh, at rude underscore percussion tweeted me the clue in the letter that leads you to believe Keene and judd's family members are kkk is that the letter is signed akia j david Keene, like a-k-i-a and he says uh, akia is short for a clansman i am so i had never heard that before but yeah that's very blatant and i was like scouring this document like and i just sort of never i don't know i, I did not pick up on that bizarre uh sign off and that is what that, that's what that stands for so um yeah it definitely seems like there's some some deep uh, history between these families and uh and relationships to the clan and uh, that's sort of uh, was born out in uh, last night's episode a little bit too. Um, all right, let's dive into this episode. Uh, we begin with Looking Glass's origin story, Hoboken, 1985, um, right outside of the the blast zone for this giant squid attack. But even before that, um, we we see uh, Looking Glass sort of basically like right off the bus, you know, um, coming out as like a Jehovah's Witness kind of evangelical. A person who is trying to uh, to save some souls as the doomsday clock ticks one minute. There's one minute left before it hits midnight. So this is like right at the you know the the peak time um, where uh, nuclear war is is about to destroy the world. Um, we see he basically there's this sort of honeypot scenario where he basically gets. Uh, suckered into this uh, this house of mirrors, and he he gets his clothes taken away from him. But I guess being inside that funhouse is what ends up ultimately saving his life. Um, did you guys have any thoughts about that? Like the obviously, there's a lot of imagery there with the reflective surfaces, and we know that Looking Glass, as a as a superhero or a costumed hero kind of character, has adopted that uh, visual aesthetic for his own identity. But um, did you? I guess on a practical level, do you think that the the mirrors surrounding him somehow shielded him from that uh, that psychic blast? Is that what we're supposed to take away there? I'm not sure if there's a practical answer here. We see when we go to the side, there are a lot of people dead, but there's still people wandering around in a daze. So I'm wondering if he just got lucky. And maybe you always hear that from people who survive, you know, uh, traumatizing incidents. Why did they survive? Why them? And not the person next to them, mm-hmm. and I, I think that guilt, you know, that, that survivor's guilt lingers over him the entire time because who the hell knows how you can survive a psychic squid attack? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that that squid attack because this is something that we see, you know, at the very end of the Watchmen graphic novel, but it's visualized here in in what is a pretty stunning shot that basically starts on Wade's like screaming naked body and zooms all the way back out to reveal the squid itself. Chris, what did you, what did you think about this shot? Oh, it was so cool. And I, I'm not going to turn this into a, uh, a Zack Snyder bashing fest, but I remember when the Watchmen movie came out, there was this whole thing about Zack Snyder saying he thought the squid was just too silly to, to realize. And this proves it's not because I thought that shot was incredible. Just the way they shot it. And 
how devastating the 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 um after effect is like we don't we don't see the dead people in new york but we do see them in hoboken and they're all like piled up and bloody and it's very horrifying it does a great job of showing how traumatic that event would be if it happened in in the quote-unquote real world yeah, certainly. And I, I, I remember listening to a podcast with the screenwriters of that movie, and they were talking about how there were already so many leaps that, that a general audience would have to buy into um, when they're watching that movie that they thought that the psychic squid attack would be basically a bridge too far for people and and not necessarily that it was a that it was silly in concept but it was just too it was like overload for general audiences so that's part of the reason why they sort of pared that down i'd never heard that that snyder uh maybe thought it was a little silly but um but yeah i think you're right i think you know based on the way that this show treats it uh as as it's sort of you know, 9-11 style event, they refer to that date as 11-2 in the same way that we talk about 9-11. It it certainly uh, was pretty incredible. And Jacob, you know, as a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft, I imagine that you were probably pretty impressed with this moment as well, right? Uh, Yeah, it was definitely a, 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 uh, for me, the biggest fear of a, a, you know, old school weird fiction story is not necessarily the tentacled monster. It is understanding that tentacled monster came from somewhere. And what is that place? Is there something bigger? And that is a such a bone chilling thing that uh, begins with the monster and then lingers throughout 30 years of these characters' lives. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I want to talk really quickly. I want to jump ahead in the in the episode. And so we see this squid and then very, you know, we're, we're in full spoilers here. For, so if people haven't listened, I want to make that exceptionally clear. Uh, but at the end of this episode, we get this info dump from Adrian Veidt, uh, this uh, video that Looking Glass watches. And it's this video message to Robert Redford where Looking Glass, or I'm sorry, where uh, Ozymandias, Adrian Veidt, reveals the truth behind the plan for this squid thing and basically confirms you know the uh, Rorschach story and and uh, basically tells the president that uh, you know these fringe theories that you may have heard about are actually true I am responsible for this thing and I did it to save the world I, I want to sort of throw this to you Jacob because I haven't talked to you much about Watchmen what do you think about the way this show is doling out information especially from the comic because I guess people who are listening to this podcast and maybe reading recaps and, um, you know, Easter egg articles and stuff that we do at slashfilm.com all the time are probably aware of the squid and its importance to the story. But this is five episodes into the show. And, you know, we were talking earlier about general audiences for people who aren't, you know, super well versed in the mythology and the lore of Watchmen. It's sort of an interesting tactic to wait this long, you know, halfway through the season, essentially, uh, or a little bit more than halfway through to reveal and, and sort of um, paint out a, a lot of these, uh, fill in a lot of these backstory elements. What, what do you think about that? I think this is one of the most clever things the show does from a structural and writing standpoint is that it only gives us information uh, when we need to have it. And the show, the pilot could have been an info dump. It could have been 90 minutes or an hour of saying, oh, here's happened 30 years ago. Here's who this guy is. Here's why this matters. But instead, it plunges us in there and says, hey, if you're interested, keep up and, and trust us to one, keep up and trust that we will learn what we need to learn. And watching this show with a group of people, many of whom have read the comic and some who haven't, it's been very interesting because oftentimes the reaction is, I'm not sure what's going on, but I want to find out. Uh, I'm not sure that applies to everybody, but this isn't, this isn't a case where um, 
mysteries are being kept for sake of keeping mysteries to being kept because either the characters on screen literally don't know them or because characters on screen know them so well that they do not need to be reiterated. And so the show finds clever ways to either reveal this information naturally in a way the characters, you know, are living, living their lives and relay something that's commonplace to them or by having a bombshell dropped, which is a tape recorded for the president that, you know, you always hear these stories about, you know, oh, when the president's in office, uh, a general shows up with a file and says, here are the aliens in Area 51. Right. <laughs> I love that. Uh, the conspiracy theory uh, in Watchmen is, is real. And I'll get to this later on, I'm sure. But the idea that um, uh, Wade, uh, Looking Glass, is literally wearing a tinfoil hat. And in the world of Watchmen, it's not a crazy thing. It's something that people who are damaged use to cope. So the idea of uh, the language of conspiracy theory being turned into something generally real and traumatizing and terrifying it uh, just loops into the idea of how this information is revealed, and it, I think it works really well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I uh, I wanted to talk about this real quick too. Um, so uh, from what I understand from the way Keen the way he describes it is he was shown this video like after he was sworn in. Like, does that imply like everyone in the government has seen this video? Because I that's like of all the things in the show I find hard to believe. That's the one I find hardest to believe because. It's such like a huge secret. I can't imagine like everyone in the government <laughs> keeping that a secret. It just right. seems very. That's he like says, the, uh, specifically he he showed after he after he was after he was assigned to a specific committee. Yeah, okay. he says, I think it's that the committee who's in charge of maybe getting the resources to make more fake squid fall. Yeah, I, yeah, I wonder like how many people are in on this. That's the one thing I don't even know if they'll ever tell us that. Like how many people in the government know about the the fake squid video. Yeah, because there are clearly like businesses that have sprung up. You know the um, what is it called? The extra dimensional security, the uh, yeah. the company EDS. that yeah, yeah EDS. <laughs> um, and and you know the there are like uh, as we saw in a previous episode, like uh, street cleaners that you know clean up the squid stuff. Like there, there's there are these industries that are uh, based on this information that is all a lie and is all maybe being. Um, sanctioned or or at least partially run by the government i don't know if that's the implication if like um you know because joe keen learned that information as soon as he joined the appropriations committee if if the government is actually responsible for keeping it going or if they just know about it i guess that that maybe is a another looming question that we have um unless either of you were able to to glean any specifics of that i, I don't think the show has really tapped into that too much yet but I imagine if the appropriations committee is shown this video, it's because they have they have to ensure that the illusion's kept up. I do wonder if we'll get the man. I would love a cold opening. The show is so good at cold openings. But cold opening, that's just the guy who goes into work every day and makes the fake squids be dumped somewhere. Yeah, in the yeah. World. That would be really cool to see. Um, all right, so continuing on with Adrian Veidt, um, we, we found out that he definitely is in space. It's unclear how much time has passed since we saw him in the previous episode. I think up until that point, we had assumed it's been like one episode per year for him, basically. Like, you know, we, we saw the cakes with uh, different numbers of candles in them. We don't see a cake with candles this time, but I think maybe we can assume that another year has passed. It looks like he's sort of... Uh, been able to perfect his um his like spacesuit technology a little bit and then also when he finally sort of uh shoots through the the um i don't even know what you would call that the his prison basically and and you see all of those bodies of the phillipses and uh or were they just phillipses i was gonna say crookshanks too. I don't... Both them, yeah. okay um if when you see all of them out there it's clear that a lot of time has passed um the interesting thing here for me is he spells out save me he also 
there's another word there that we couldn't really see and it starts with the letter d and i was wondering what you guys thought about that um do you have any thoughts i, I have some thoughts but I'm, I'm not sure that i have like a full fully formed theory but do you guys have any ideas about what save me d could be i mean the two characters names in the, in the watchman history are dan dryberg aka niall who know who's in prison and dr manhattan uh but i feel like those are almost too obvious what do you think chris like I am, I, I might think it's Doctor Manhattan, but at the same time, I feel like does everyone agree at this point that the the best theory is that Doctor Man Manhattan is the one who's imprisoned him? Because I feel like that's what the show has been hinting at the entire time, and that whole talk about you know ah your god has abandoned you, and like it seems to me like they're very much leaning into it being Doctor Manhattan. So if that is the case, it'd be weird for him to ask Doctor Manhattan for help. So right. I, I don't yeah. Yeah, that was those were my thoughts as well. The the game warden, I think he he's called is he says, you know, our god has left us and it's unlikely he'll return and he's clearly talking about Dr. Manhattan and that means to me that Dr. Manhattan is the one who is responsible for the lake babies, you know, all the those creatures that are that uh, uh, Adrian Veidt turns into Phillips's and and Crookshanks. So I think it's probably safe to say that Dr. Manhattan is the one who is imprisoning him. And for him to say, save me D it, 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 there's also the idea that the, um, we see a satellite, right? Looking down at whatever that is, the moon of Jupiter, I think, uh, where he's actually being imprisoned. And it's sort of like Dr. Manhattan, are we expected to believe that he's looking at a satellite feed somewhere that doesn't really seem like something that he would do? Um, I, I'm wondering if there's a chance that, uh, if Dr. Manhattan and Adrian Veidt entered into some sort of agreement where Manhattan established that the only way that Veidt could escape from this this property would be if he could send him a signal somehow, almost as like an intellectual challenge, then maybe that would explain why he's doing this and why he was so elated by... Because I, I, I think Veidt says something like, I did it, you know, once he, he spells it all out. He's, like, super excited about that, and then he gets yanked back into that world. So yeah. it seems like he, he accomplished a specific task that he was trying to do, and I'm just wondering if there's maybe some sort of unspoken thing there. I'm just... I'm racking my brain trying to figure out why Save Me D makes sense, and, and I, don't, I don't know if I'm just going off the deep end or what. Uh I don't have a good answer for you, but I have a few observations. Uh, quick comic book note. Uh, Vite screening, uh, I did it, is a callback to the comic where after he successfully launches the squid, he, he says the exact same thing. He announces, I did it, uh, triumphantly. So that's a fun little Easter egg. Nice. But also, uh, but also, the last thing Dr. Manhattan says before he exits the Watchmen comic is that he intends to go off and to try maybe and maybe consider building his own universe. So I think you're right. I think 100% we are seeing the universe Dr. Manhattan built on the moon of Jupiter and decided just to, oh, I'm done with that now. And... It would explain a lot about that world, about how if Dr. Manhattan finds humans too messy and complicated, you know, he's built a world where all, they're all the same, they all come out of a lake, and it's all streamlined by the mind of a computer trying to make humanity easier to control and manage itself and not need uh, protection from nuclear wars by giant squids. Uh, so that universe makes sense as a creation of Dr. Manhattan. But I'm also wondering if he vanished right after Lady True bought his company, uh, then maybe somehow she has learned about this alternate dimension has been abandoned by its god and has sent him there 
to get him out of the way for her own de- uh, designs and her own plans. Yeah, that's that's a big question too. Like how you know are are Lady True and Adrian Veidt on the same side, or are they opposing figures? Is there some sort of deal that was in place between them? Is there an understanding there, or are they? Yeah, are, are they opponents? Um, Chris, I, I I don't know. I know you've seen I think one more episode, the the very next episode, and that's all you've seen so far, right? So yeah. I wonder if you could answer that question uh, without getting into any sort of spoilery stuff or or have you know offer up some speculation of your own no i don't i mean i think the implication is that they are working together if only because she has that statue of him but that could all be you know misdirection who who knows i uh, the the wild card of this entire series is the adrian Veidt plotline where i i love it because it's so weird but i really have yet to figure out how it connects to the show as a whole other than you know tying into the comic yeah. Let me throw this out here. Uh, what if Lady True is so impressed by Adrian Vite and she's learned what he did that her own plan that commences in three days' time, as you learned, is so monumental and required all of his resources that when he learned about it, even Adrian Vite said, no, you can't do this. She was forced to imprison him on, on, on Jupiter's moon. And that's why it's best to get back because hmm. it, it, it's she's going to out Ozymandias, Ozymandias. Yeah, that, I mean... <laughs> That tracks to me. I don't know. There are so many unanswered questions, but uh, I guess the show is is um, <laughs> you know it's slowly filling in these details, and uh, I, I really like these character centric episodes. Like we had that one with Lori Blake, uh, I think in episode three, and this one is really like a showcase for Tim Blake Nelson as Looking Glass, and I guess that's a good a good transition point for us to talk about uh, how you know the rest of his story and and jump back into that side of things. Um, I thought he was tremendous in this episode, and, and you know, we see him, uh, he's got this job giving feedback to focus groups, um, which is really interesting, too, because, you know, his whole thing is, like, he can tell people are lying, but he, there's so much more mirror imagery there. Like, he even the focus group thing, he's looking through a mirror that, that only he can see, uh, you know, see through, and they can't see him. They're looking back at a mirror. Um, it's just, I mean, there are so many levels that the show is working on, and I'm, I'm with just a few hours elapsed since my viewing, I'm still like trying to wrap my head around all of like the, the metaphors and like visual, <laughs> uh, you know, visual call outs and all that kind of stuff that they've done there. But um, Can we dwell if... for a second on how good that fake New York uh, tourism commercial is. <laughs> yes. Come back to New York, come back to Central Park and, and hiking Central Park and not see someone for hours is now a good selling point because no one lives in New York. Yeah, that, that's wild. That whole thing also like raised a million new questions for me because there's that great moment at the end where they have Michael and Perioli, and I'm assuming he's like playing himself, like at, you know the actor he's playing himself. But like, does the Sopranos exist in this world? Because <laughs> you know the Sopranos has a lot to do with the New York mob, and as we all know, New York had a huge, massive destruction. So what happened to the mafia in right. this world? I'm there's so many questions that they will never <laughs> answer. But the Sopranos <laughs> exist in Watchmen. I need to know. Yeah. Uh, also, this, this episode has my favorite title reveal yet. Uh, Little Fear of Lightning seen from behind in reverse through the mirror. Yeah. And I, I want to say that this, this quote from Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And the full quote is, if there were no thunder, men would have no men would have little fear of lightning, implying that, um, you know, men need a reason to be afraid of dangerous things, which is a, a perfect title for this episode. Yeah. And especially with. You know, the, it, I mean, it links in with Ozymandias and what he did, like the, you know, the, this this brewing storm of nuclear war, and then his solution to that being the lightning bolt of this squid plan that he executed to perfection. 
uh, and, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, I'm, I'll am open up the floor to you guys. If you guys have anything uh, involving Looking Glass or any of his story points, like feel free to bring up bring them up at any any point. I'm just going to sort of jump through a couple um, scenes and locations and stuff that um, that that stuck out to me. But if you guys have anything along the way, feel free to, to throw them out there. Um, that we see uh, Wade use these extra dimensional security drills, and it, it you know that combined with the um, reflective lining in his hat really shows you that he is not over this uh, the psychic trauma of you know what what happened on that day back in 1985. He's still scarred not only by you know the the psychic blast of this thing and and what that you know, emerging onto that horror show of all those dead bodies would do to a person, but also being left by that woman because we find out that he, his ex uh, works at this place called Forever Pets, which is like a, a cloning facility where you can clone your own pets. And by the way, she destroys a puppy. I'm pretty sure that's the implication. She sticks that <laughs> yes. thing in like a, what looks like a dishwasher or something, and then just like pushes a button. And I'm glad we didn't hear any like yelps or anything terrible because it was already bad enough in my mind. But yeah, this show so, I mean, if Ozymandias has so little regard for human life, Adrian Veidt is willing to kill three million to save billions. I mean, then we have a show where it, he's also off killing his own clones on the on Jupiter's uh, moon. I mean, this is trickled down in, into the real world where, you know, the, life has taken on so little meaning that if a clone the dog, it's in the right size, you just put it in an incinerator and it's gone. Yeah. It's so dark. <laughs> yeah, super dark. Um, but I guess his ex reveals that the pills that, uh, that Will wanted Angela to have are nostalgia and nostalgia, of course, is like, uh, for those who read the comic, you might recognize that name. Um, Adrian Veidt created a brand of, I think it was perfume called it was like nostalgia. cosmetics in general. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that, that goes back there. I wonder if that's, uh, if the, if that, if the implication there is that, uh, Adrian Veidt was all always using this sort of memory technology and imbuing those abilities or, or, or properties, I guess, into his line of cosmetics, or if this is just taken the name and it's, uh, because this is Lady True's company now, um, and she's just sort of taken the name and, and added this whole uh, memory aspect to these pills. I don't know. I think from the next time on preview, we see that Angela is and at the end of this episode when she downs that entire bottle of pills with no water, by the way, it's very impressive, very hard to do. Um, I think this, the entire next episode is going to be uh, her sort of going on this memory trip. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Cause I'm, lo I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how that all ties in. Ben, can I throw in a tinfoil hat theory? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, so in the comics, uh, you're right, Adrian Veidt has Nostalgia, his uh, cosmetics brand, but at the end of the comic, there's like a, a brief aside referencing about how Nostalgia brand is out, and he's transitioning a new brand called Millennium. Mm -hmm. And isn't that the name of the new clock that Lady True is building? It is. Millennium clock? Yes. So here, here's what I'm wondering. If Nostalgia is this memory pill, is Millennium the next step forward using this memory technology? Because clearly the, the uh, Will, the grandfather, has it. And also... The guy in the support group who mentions emotional trauma being put in the DNA, does that mean – and also in Tulsa, where DNA of thousands of black Americans who have undergone trauma has been collected, it's just, is this all tying together in some way? All, yeah. all the – 
I, th- I think so. I think you're yeah. you're right on, especially with the millennium clock thing. The the word millennium is not necessarily, uh, you know, th- that's not an accident that they're using that there. And I think that definitely ties in. I want to bring up a, a potential time travel theory uh, a little bit later on in the episode, but I think I think you're onto something there. And I'm glad you mentioned the um, the group trauma thing because you know we we see that Wade is still scarred by. Uh, the psychic stuff. He's also scarred by being left behind by that woman, and and we see that his his woman. I'm sorry, his uh, ex-wife. Um, she basically says like, you know, we spent seven. I spent seven years trying to convince you that I wasn't going to do the same thing that happened to you already. So Wade is you know dealing with his own sort of uh, lingering trauma events, but he, also when he's leading this recovery group, one of the the fellow people that's in the group with him talks about genetic trauma, and they talk about how they read this article and and how you know people inherit their family's pain and how that's a real thing. And I, I looked this up, and um, there's an article at the Atlantic that I want to link to in the show notes. But uh, they said that there is a this this article came out last year. Um, there's a new study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, I guess that's some sort of journal. Um, and they said that the study found that the sons of Union Army soldiers who endured grueling conditions as prisoners of war were more likely to die young than the sons of soldiers who were not prisoners. This is despite the fact that the sons were born after the war, so they couldn't have experienced its, its horrors personally. In other words, it seems like the stresses of war were getting passed down between generations. So uh, that's the quote from that article, and I think there's some also some you know extrapolation there of like uh, Holocaust survivors and and their uh, offspring. You know, the, there's the the idea of passing down trauma is something that this show has been really dealing with since its opening scene, um, and and the idea that Will was this little kid who experienced the the uh, Tulsa massacre, and then um, I, I think you know, this is not the last that we're going to see of that, but I, I like the, the idea of uh, tying, you know, thematically tying everything back in with trauma. And that's, um, that's sort of like one of the big talking points of the show at, at large, I think. The idea of weaponizing trauma in some way, which has to be Lady Chewie's plan is so unsettling. Uh, and, but also I'm wondering in the same way that Ozymandias, you can make some kind of argument for him doing the right thing by saving the world by by killing millions so there is an argument there mm-hmm. I, I really think we're being set up for some kind of grand plan that's going to be a great a big ethical dilemma on uh, on how it works because all, all the seeds are in the right place for lady true to be doing something uh using all of this that will ring true it, it's it's the eric killmonger thing for black panther he has a point he's going about the wrong way right right and you mentioned the end of the comic too i wanted to mention one line from that recovery session uh, somebody says uh, i think uh, wade actually says does it ever end of course it does we're in a tunnel and every tunnel ends and and the idea of nothing ever ends is sort of a reflective or, or reminiscent of um ozymandias and dr manhattan and their last interaction in the comic um, right before Dr. Manhattan disappears and goes off to Mars, he says something about how nothing ever ends. So, um, yeah, just the, the way that the, the show is sort of subtly uh, seeding in all of these references and stuff, I think, is, is really well done. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess he uh, Wade meets this character who... Her name is Renee. I'm not sure if they ever actually say that out loud in the show. Um, I, I may have missed that, but I, I just I don't looking... think they do, but I got it from the credits when I was okay. writing my review. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Um, so, and she's from Deadwood, right? Uh, yeah, Paula actress... Malcolmson is her name. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you kind of know, and maybe it's just because 
we saw the this opening where Wade had such a traumatic experience with a woman, but you kind of get the sense that like something is off about this woman. And then of course she is a member of the Seventh Cavalry and and leads him uh, directly into this scenario that's like kind of a trap and kind of not. I mean, it, it's like basically like a leads him into their own version of the truth pod kind of thing that that the interrogation pod almost that he uses as the the member of the police force like he uh is is lured directly into this area and uh realizes that the seventh cavalry used a set to film their threatening video and they're developing their own teleportation technology um what do you guys make of this what what do you think the seventh cavalry's in game is with their teleportation stuff I think it's less their endgame and more of the senator's endgame. Clearly, he's taking over their manpower, as he says, to um, keep the peace. And I think he's working on something as opposed to them. Uh, because I don't think a white supremacist group of you know Oklahoma uh, white people is going to need teleportation. Whereas a senator uh, with grand means and now a workforce of devoted cult-like followers, uh, you can use that. You can, you can manipulate that. Also... When Looking Glass gets there, he pulls something out of the truck and it's like a box and it has Lady True's logo on it. So I don't know if that means they're stealing something from her or if she's directly tied into whatever they're doing, but there is some sort of connection there. Interesting. I missed that. That is fascinating. I wonder if, yeah, she, I wonder if they're basically operating on parallel tracks, like whatever plot she has may be in in league with uh what the seventh cavalry is doing that's that's really interesting um hmm that that's i also what... i don't and i don't know if i'm reading into this too much because to be fair keen does call them like racist yokels but i got the feeling from this episode that the seventh cavalry isn't who we think they are like they're not actually this white supremacist group they're that's like a cover for something else just because that that Paula Malkinson character seems so, I don't know, level-headed. And she, even, like, after Looking Glass finds out, you know, who she is, she doesn't, like, turn into this, like, stock character. I don't know if that's, like, just her performance or what, but I, I got the weird impression that they're not who they've been built up to be. But I it, could be wrong. It could be that. It could just be the show's, you know, constant complexity and, and sort right. of muddying the, the waters. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, the impression I got was that they started out as a white supremacist organization, but once the senator took control, uh, Senator Keene, he, he shifted them to, you know, to sort of take advantage of the fact that they're an organized group, but, you know, shift them away from targeting, you know, uh, black people and cops and more toward, you know, collecting batteries to build teleportation yeah. devices. Yeah, yeah, I think they said something like um, uh, Keen and Judd Crawford were sort of brought in to manage these teams right after the White Knight to maintain the peace and make sure that another White Knight situation doesn't happen again. So I think you're right there, Jacob. Um, and are we to assume that he was supposed to be successfully kidnapped at the funeral and he did not plan for his buddy to get shot in the head? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's true. I think, yeah, there was definitely some sort of setup there, but that I'm still sort of unclear, and I haven't really thought about it that much, but I'm still sort of unclear about what exactly his endgame was for that situation, too, because if he's a part of the 7th Cavalry, what exactly was he trying to do there by having him be, you know, by, by willingly go along going along with this kidnapping scenario? And I wonder if it has to do with the teleportation stuff. Like, do you guys think that there's a chance that um okay so so here's where my 
uh, crackpot theorizing comes in a little bit. So I'm wondering if because of Keen and his uh, his political ambitions, the the end game for the Seventh Cavalry in my mind would be to tell the world the truth, right? And that that seems to be. Uh, they, they learned it from Rorschach. They they know that um, the information that uh, Adrian Veidt gave, gives in that video is real. And I think, they, you know, they, they know that uh, the world has the wool over its eyes, right? And I think their endgame is just to pull that back and explain, hey, this actually was a conspiracy and we know the truth about it. And I, I'm not sure how exactly that would play into Keen's political ambitions. Like if he thinks that, being the ultimate truth teller would uh, advance his his presidential hopes in some way. Like I'm I'm wondering if the oh go ahead. I was gonna say like I can't figure out that end game either because I feel like by making this knowledge public, it would like destroy the world. <laughs> like yeah. society would literally collapse, and then there would be no real need for a government maybe that is what he, he's like he's the ultimate republican who wants no <laughs> government at all and he's trying to just like that's that's the only thing i get there because like i feel like the minute something like this gets revealed it would literally destroy this world as these characters know it because yeah the last 30 years would be built on a lie so right. I, I don't yeah yeah, I don't know. I, I was wondering if they might use that teleportation technology for, you know, like on a presidential debate or something. Like if he were to just like teleport out onto the stage in front of a national audience and and explain the story like, you know, this is just this is not an interdimensional uh, incursion event. This is just something that some guy uh, created. But then, yeah, you're right, Chris. Like, I feel like Russia would immediately be like, wait a second, what? Like, we've been friendly with the U.S. for all of these years for no reason, and people would just get immediately defensive, and, and countries would... <laughs> it, would ju- it would just make... Like, the entire geopolitical uh, atmosphere would be immediately charged and totally different than where it is right now. So I don't know how that tracks with somebody who has political ambitions. Like if, he, if somebody wants power, revealing that information to the entire world just seems to be a good way to destabilize every system that's currently in place. So I'm not sure there would be anything left to have power over, but uh, Jacob, what do you think about that? Yeah. I, I don't know what the end game here is either. I, I think that, uh, Keen seems way too smart to uh, reveal this. If you want to reveal it, he has the power to do it. He has a copy of the tape. So the fact that he's showing to select people and keeping it underground and working with a you know white supremacist group to get whatever his job is done, he's working in the shadows. I don't think he has any intention of making this public. And why? And again, I'm sure I'm sure I'm missing something very obvious here. And hopefully you guys can maybe fill in some of these gaps for me. Why is Angela so important to Keen? Why is she the the one person that he's concerned about? finding out about this because he basically threatens her you know he has looking glass there and he says you know i could send these racist idiots to go kill her and her entire family or you can do me a favor and basically like uh you know work with Lori blake to uh to reveal the fact that angela knows more than she's letting on and she's part of this cover-up involving judd crawford's death so it just seems so elaborate to me that he would go through this this middleman in Looking Glass to get him to do this work when, like you said, Jacob, if, if the ultimate endgame is just to reveal this information to the world, he could do it right now. Like, what what is Angela's importance in this whole thing? I, I think it's for for him. Uh, having your killed makes it a mess even messier. Whereas having your you know tied into a pre-existing crime, it's a really tidy way to make a problem go away. 
And right now, the big problem you may be looking at is that she's investigating Lady True. So I think this only adds more fuel to them somehow being on the same side. Mm, yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so uh, the one other like visual thing that I, I wanted to mention really quick was that that wall of monitors reminded me a little bit of the one of the Dharma stations from Lost, and I think it's also maybe a callback to the comic. Like uh, Vite has this wall of screens in his, uh, I think Karnak is the name of it, his like tropical domed zone where he, um, I guess, enacts the whole squid thing, and he sort of yeah. like watches this big wall of screens to make sure that his his plan went off smoothly. So his his uh, vivarium, which Lady yes. True also has. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I think those are like the main. I mean, and then of course the seventh cavalry like rolls back up onto Looking Glass's property at the very end um, with like guns drawn. And I guess the implication there is that they're coming to kill him because he's right. done. He's done what they needed him to do by uh, by basically getting Angela arrested. Is that right? That's how I read it. That he's served his purpose. Now they're gonna kill him because he's a witness more like he knows the truth and now they got to get rid of him. But I guess we'll see what happens. I just want to say, I love the whole, the journey Tim Blake Nelson goes through. I, th- I think this is the best episode yet of the, of the series, but there's like all these individual moments where Tim Blake Nelson really sells his character's mindset. Like one of my favorite is earlier where he's, he's in his bunker and he looks over at that empty bed and you can just like immediately read that like it's him thinking about, you know, his ex and how she must have like put up with him for a while coming in this, this bunker and laying across with him for, you know, a certain period of time. And then there's that whole ending moment where he gets home, he, he gets his replacement alarm and, you know, you think he has this moment of triumph where he throws it in the trash and then he immediately goes and gets it back. So like, you know, that whole thing, Keen's whole pitch to him was – ah, you're not going to be afraid anymore, but it turns out he still is. Like, he can't just immediately put that in the in the past. And that's all done, you know, wordlessly without any dialogue. And Tim Blake Nelson sells it, like, so well with it's just, like, very subtle, understated performance. Yeah, certainly. And, and you can totally f- understand his mindset there because he's spent his entire life being, you know, traumatized by this singular event and then to find out that it's a lie – to be able to snap your fingers and change everything you know about who you are and, and where you come from and how all of that, uh, you know, ha- has shaped your identity over the past, whatever, 30 plus years. Um, it, it seems like a tough ask of anybody. So I, I'm not surprised that he, right. you know, dug that thing back out of the trash. But And like, as as hard as it might be for some people to understand, like, if you live your whole life <laughs> under like this blanket of trauma, you you learn to like immediately associate that with what life is like, ah, this is what I've known life to be for 30 years. I find some sort of comfort in this traumatic mindset, you know, as good as it would be to suddenly be rid of it. It's, it's, you know, your whole world, you've made it your whole life. You can't, you know, you, you find an odd comfort in it, which I think the show sells really well with the whole, uh, you know, traumatic, uh, being paced to pass down sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Chris, uh, you, may, you may have discussed this in a previous episode, but have you watched the leftovers? No, I could not get, uh, I, I watched the first episode and there was that moment where there's like a guy shooting a bunch of dogs. And I was like, that's it. This show isn't for me, but I've heard it's great. Chris, the stuff you're talking about right now is stuff that makes you think you should give it a second shot because this is, the show is becoming increasingly a thematic cousin or even sibling to The Leftovers, and I think you would really get a lot out of it. 
Everyone says it's so good. I, I have to give it another chance, but I had such a hard time with that first episode where they're just murdering dogs. I was like, <laughs> this is not the show for me. I had a similar thing, Chris. I think I watched like the first four episodes of season one and just couldn't. It was so bleak that I couldn't really get through it. But I've heard that the tone sort of changes a little bit in the second season. And then, it, you know, from there, it just gets better, basically. So I just I haven't gone back and, and checked that out myself yet. But. Uh, I'm glad we have at least one person who's seen the leftovers and, and is able to draw those connections here. So thank you for that, Jacob. The, the idea of um, a massive supernatural event to be the catalyst to explore trauma is David Lindelof did this before with leftovers. And I feel like that show was good and acclaimed, but I feel like watching is a platform to explore similar ideas, you know, but in a more approachable because uh, of, you know, superheroes uh, setting. Right. But, but yeah, leftovers is a, is a tremendous accomplishment, but it, it is definitely a far more bitter pill to swallow than Watchmen, which, as we've discussed, has enough mysteries to keep the Lost fans, you know, there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so a couple random thoughts. I love the music in this episode, especially the recurring uh, version of Careless Whisper, like especially that acoustic version I thought was really, really beautiful. And just the, the choice of that song. I don't think we've seen that yet in this show so far, where a single song has been the sort of a uh, musical focal point of an episode and then like riffs on that have have sort of sprung out as the episode has has gone on because we get like so many different versions of careless whisper here um and then just like lyrically too the way that it connects to uh what what tim blake nelson's character is going through like the, one of the lyrics in the song is there's no comfort in the truth pain is all you'll find i just thought that you know it was an exceptionally well chosen song and i just love that song in general so what did you guys think about the music here uh, i love how uh... The song is a recurring motif becomes something that's inescapable for him because it's not he'll he'll never hear that song on the radio and not think of that moment again. Yeah. And that it's kind of stunning when you think about. Um, I think we all associate you know taste and sounds with trauma, and you know there are certain you know things. If I smell a certain smell, I remember a certain thing. And if you ever hear that familiar saxophone riff in Carol's Whisper, he's going to go back to that fun house. That's a terrifying thought. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Spielberg's Pale Horse that was mentioned very briefly in this episode. Uh, that movie apparently won a zillion Oscars. Chris, do you think that uh, that Schindler's List exists in the Watchmen universe? Or like this is the one thing in this episode I had a problem with because it seems it seemed a little too on the nose, for lack of a better word, for to pull a literal Steven Spielberg scene that exists in one of his movies and put it in this fictional movie. Like it, it felt like lazy to me, I guess that's not the right word, but that's the thing that goes on my head. But yeah, that immediately suggests also that uh, they say that that pale horse movie came out in 92 Schindler's list came out in 91. So I'm, I'm guessing Schindler's list does not <laughs> exist in this world, which is also weird. I don't know how to, I, I, I had a little trouble with that because that felt too much like something a show trying to be this show would do, if that makes sense. Mm. I don't know. Mm. Um, Jacob, what did you make of that moment? Uh, well, not as harsh on as Chris is, but let me wondering if Jurassic Park exists, <laughs> because in a world where a giant alien script from the sky, will dinosaurs coming back to life be as remarkable and, and exciting? And would Spielberg make in the same year he made... Um, Schindler's List, so who knows? I wow. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then the entire, you know, visual effects as we know them may not have, uh, have, uh, I guess, progressed in the same way in Hollywood because that movie was like a, a flashpoint for, <laughs> you know, the, the entirety of CG as we know it today. So. Oh, and random note, uh, tobacco, illegal apparently. Oh, yeah, yeah, controlled substance. That's, that's strange. Like all, I mean, I, I think we saw like... Um, 
on one of the episodes of uh, American Hero Story, um, the show within the show, I think there was a, a message before that talking about, you know, giving all these warnings and sort of um, decrees from the government about, you know, this this show does not represent the views and beliefs. Like, basically, like we don't want you to watch the show, but we're going to put it on TV anyway. So it seems like Redford's America is, uh, is you know, clamping down on um, everything that's bad for you. Uh, so maybe that's a... a um, uh, some sort of commentary on what might happen if uh, leftist culture became like the dominant political force for three decades. I don't know. Um, and then uh, I guess there, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention about the uh, potential time travel theory. So I, I was reading a little bit about how the Millennium Clock may be some may have something to do to do with time travel. And I don't think anybody really knows at this point. People are just sort of theorizing and speculating because of some of the dialogue in last week's episode where the characters go to visit Lady True at the Millennium Clock and somebody says, like, what does it do? And uh, Lady True's daughter says it tells time. And um, people are speculating, like, this huge thing out in the middle of Oklahoma that's meant to withstand nuclear blasts and all this stuff. There's got to be more to it than just a giant clock. So what if it's some sort of time travel device? And my immediate thought was, like, what if... Uh, the Seventh Cavalry is involved with this thing, and they are trying to uh, use time travel to go back and stop uh, Ozymandias from uh, doing the squid thing. Like, you know, basically, like, what if they're trying to change history in some way? Um, and I, I don't know. What What do you guys think about that? There's not really much there. I know I'm sort of that, grasping at, at straws, but that's actually my current theory as well. And I'm I'm not. You know, I, I've seen the sixth episode. I'm not giving anything away. I do think that might be it. But then again, I don't know. <laughs> but that's kind of what I love about this show is that it's very unpredictable. But it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like the last season of Lost did, where it felt like it was winging it. And again, I loved Lost. I loved most of the the last season even, but. The, the final few episodes, it really felt like they they had just sort of run out of ideas and were just winging it with the mysteries. And what I love about the show is all the mysteries do feel like they actually are eventually paying off. Like it doesn't feel like they're just making it obtuse to be obtuse. So I, I, I love that about the show. Yeah. Um, Jacob, do you have any thoughts on that uh, potentially ridiculous, potentially accurate theory? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it makes too much sense to ignore, but I'm also, I have my own, like I said, I have my own tinfoil hat theory involving, um, I don't know, if I had to out, out there to go to broadcast memories of America and the world's pain somehow, that's my tinfoil mm. hat theory. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I mean, talking about weaponizing nostalgia, like that's, that's a, a literalization of that concept that could be... Um, yeah, really interesting, and and maybe like a, a commentary on our culture at large right now too, because there's the the show is not above making commentary like that. There, there's a moment in this episode where um, I think it's Senator Keene says something about uh, Wade asks him if they're gonna drop another squid, and he said where's where's the originality in that? We're gonna do something new. So um, based on you know thematically what the show has been dealing with from the beginning, I, th I like that theory of logic, and I feel like that might be uh, that might you might be onto something there. So. Um, okay, I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode, unless you guys have any final thoughts on anything, anything we didn't cover that you guys wanted to mention about this episode. There's a lot of really great stuff in here. The show is real good. <laughs> All right, good. I, I like Do that. We, um, how many episodes are left? Is it eight? I think, oh, it's, I think it's a nine-episode yeah, season. Yeah, nine. Right? There's four left after this. So based, so we're really getting close to the end here. Do you think 
the show is going to stick the landing. Let's let's take a, a guess right now. Do you think it's going to pull it off? Or because as we know, Damon Lindelof had said like this is an entirely self-contained season, so it's not going to end with a cliffhanger. It's going to have an actual ending. Do you think <laughs> this is building towards a uh, you know a successful ending? Are they going to be able to pull it off? I think yes. so. I think I think uh, he's he's said that the Adrian Veidt stuff is definitely going to intersect with the the larger storyline. Um, so I, I'm not worried that that's going to be its own separate thing. I think he and the the writers really made an effort to make sure that this arc actually works over the course of nine episodes. And I I'm sure there will still be some lingering questions, but I feel like all the big stuff that we really really care about is going to be answered by the time that nine episodes is over. I'm very curious to see if the show's going to come back because this is, you know, we're more than halfway through a season. Normally, I feel like by now there are some rumblings about a season two or something like that, but um, I haven't heard anything from, from HBO or from Lindelof or any of those people. Like, you know, there's, he's, he's just sort of left it uh, up to the network, I guess, to, you know, if they're going to renew it. And he said that he might not even come back. So this could be all of the Watchmen that he's interested in telling, but um, Jacob, you're, you're positive that uh, this is going to be resolved to your satisfaction as well? Look, uh, I, I, I'm still burnt by End of Lost. I love that show. But I think no one more than Damon Lindelof is aware of how important it is to stick the landing. And he's, in the years since then, has proven himself so adept at as a storyteller that I, there's no way he can't. If he, if he, if he does, if, he, if Damon Lindelof screws this up, the person would be most angry with Damon Lindelof. I, yeah. I strongly believe that. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, okay, well, I guess uh, before we go, let's tell people where they can find more of our work online. Uh, Jacob, let's start with you. Uh, I'm on Slashfilm.com every day, and I'm on Twitter, where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. Chris? Also Slashfilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 I am at Slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about Watchmen at Slashfilm.com. I'm going to link in this show notes, uh, the episode um, notes here, the uh, Inherited Trauma Shapes Your Health article from The Atlantic that I talked about. I'll link to Chris's review of this episode and also our Easter eggs and references post. Um, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, so definitely check that out. And yeah, you could subscribe to Slash Film Daily on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. The show is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. Send us your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns uh, to peter at slashfilm.com. And make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. If you have any crazy theories or anything like that, please send them our way. I'll read them on the show. We're, we're interested in what you guys are, are feeling about the show at, you know, as we cross the halfway point here. Um, don't forget also to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. If you like it, tell your friends. Spread the word any way you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.